I'll be reading from Matthew 6, 25 through 34. So I tell you, don't worry about the things you need to live, what you will eat, drink, or wear. Life is more important than food, and the body is more important than what you put on it. Look at the birds. They don't plant, harvest, or save food in barns, but your heavenly Father feeds them. Don't you know that you are worth more, much more than they are? You cannot add any time to your life by worrying about it. And why do you worry about clothes? Look at the wildflowers in the field. See how they grow. They don't work or make clothes for themselves. But I tell you that even Solomon, the great and rich king, was not dressed as beautifully as one of these flowers. So if God makes what grows in the field so beautiful, what do you think he will do for you? It's just grass. One day it's alive, and the next day someone throws it into a fire. But God cares enough to make it beautiful. Surely he will do much more for you. Your faith is so small. Don't worry and say, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? That's what those people who don't know God are always thinking about. Don't worry, because your Father in heaven knows that you need all these things. What you should want most is God's kingdom and doing what he wants you to do. Then he will give you all these things you need. So don't worry about tomorrow. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Tomorrow will have its own worries. Thank you, Noah. Uh, This morning, uh, as Andrew said, we begin a brand new series on fear. And the reality is that every person in this room at one point or another has been gripped by some kind of fear, either real or imagined. Anxiety is an age-old problem. It isn't new to our culture. It seems more pronounced. It seems more obvious. Anxiety seems to be so prevalent today, but anxiety has always been. There are some of you who sit here this morning and you know a time when out of nowhere you were gripped by fear. Out of nowhere you were overtaken by what seemed to be a power beyond your control. And as you wrestled against that power, you wondered where it came from, what it was doing there, why you could feel one day uh, one way and another day the next. And so you sit here this morning, some of you haven't overcome uh, fear just to be in this place this morning, just to worship uh, God with other believers this morning, you have overcome fear. Jesus, knowing the reality of fear in our lives, speaks to it. He spoke to it here in this famed sermon on the mount. It was on a hill overlooking uh, a hill overlooking the Sea of Galilee in which on which thousands of people gathered, most of them common people like you and me. They gathered to hear Jesus teach. They had heard about him, and they wanted to hear what he had to say. And Jesus, in teaching them, began or or continued his sermon by talking about anxiety. He says, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? There are a couple of troubling thoughts that that very verse brings to us. Here they are. Jesus says, is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? What is the problem with Jesus' question? Here is the problem. 
If you do not have food, you will not have life. If you do not have clothing in a cold place, you will die. Jesus goes to the very basic necessities of life and seems to dismiss them. He seems to disregard them. He seems to set those very basic necessities of life aside as if they don't matter. And his audience, many of whom were fear, many of whom lived from day to day. They were day, uh, day uh, laborers. They got paid every single day. Jesus' audience would have heard that and thought, who are you? To suggest that life matters more than the food that I need to eat today and more the than the clothes I need to wear today. What are you saying? Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? The body will die without clothing. Life will end without food. What is Jesus saying? I think we could summarize it into one succinct statement. You will live somewhere someday. You will live somewhere someday. The reason Jesus can say this is that life, in its ultimate sense, is more than food. And life, in its ultimate sense, is more than clothing. Ultimately, food will get you through this life. Ultimately, clothing will protect you from the elements in this life. But you will live on somewhere, someday. Food won't get you there. Clothes won't get you there. Something to drink, which he also addresses, won't get you there either. You will live on somewhere, someday. In light of that, Jesus gives three prescriptions for anxiety. Three prescriptions for anxiety. What are they? He says, look around at creation. Look at the next verse, verse 26. Look at the birds of the air. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? This morning as I got up early and I was praying through this sermon, all I could hear around the house was the chirping of the birds. It's springtime, and you can hear them everywhere, can't you? Birds are singing. As a matter of fact, there's a robin that's chosen to build on our back porch. We have a wreath there, and the robin, for whatever reason, chose to build in the bottom part of that wreath. And so uh, we have to come up these steps, tiny little stoop. There's the wreath. We open the door. There's the bird. It is right outside our door. And that robin has laid now four large blue eggs. I watched as that robin was building and blew my mind because we could see it up close and personal and watched that robin build this nest and, and she went and got all of these different kinds of things and then all of a sudden it was all wet. And I've wondered how these things stay together. But she somehow gathered all wet material, matted that entire nest with wet material, only then to coat it with dry material again. 
It's amazing how that bird knows what to do, isn't it? As a matter of fact, it was, I think, day before yesterday, Hannah was home uh, from college, and, and, and she and Gogo had come in, and it was at night, and they forgot about the bird in the nest. And those of you know, who know Gogo know that she has nice white hair that, that stands up on her head a little bit. Well, the bird doesn't realize that. And so they come up the steps, they get to the stoop, they're going to put the key in the door when the bird realizes she has some company, flies out of the nest toward Gogo's hair. Gogo dodges, 82, she dodges the bird, nails Hannah in the head. (laughs) Nails her in the head. They're all screaming, it was hilarious. It was just hilarious. Do you know what Jesus is saying? Jesus is saying God so cares for the birds that they don't sow nor reap. Do you know that robin that has built that nest on our back stoop did not sow any of the grass or the straw that it has used to build that nest? It didn't start sowing because it knew it had to reap in order to build a nest. They neither sow nor do they reap, but God takes care of them. So what what is Jesus' point? And he says, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? Birds live and die, and no one notices except God. Scripture says he knows when one falls to the ground. Are you not more valuable than they? Well, well, am I? I would say we live in a culture that has devalued humanity to the point that you might be tempted to think you're not. Jesus is making the point, yes, you are. Why? Simply put, you're going to live somewhere Someday. Those birds won't. When they die, they die. When you die, you just begin the largest part of your life. Wow. When you die, the big stuff starts to happen. And you thought this was big stuff. You thought whatever sale you made was huge this week and somehow worthy of celebration, and I'm sure it was. And you thought the purchase you made this week or the house you're looking at or all of these plans that you're making are so amazing, and I'm sure they are. But the reality is that if you go out to a graveyard, you'll see a beginning point And that beginning point is the day of your birth. Mine was yesterday, 46 years ago, yesterday. Beginning point. We have a tendency to think then that the ending point is the date on there. It isn't. It's another beginning point to where you will spend the rest of your life. That's Jesus' point here. You will live somewhere, someday. And some of you are thinking right now, uh, you know, Jerry, I thought this was supposed to decrease anxiety in me. 
It's not working. If this is supposed to lower my level of anxiety, all of a sudden I'm a little more anxious than I was when I walked in this place. Could Jesus be on to something here? What does he say? He doesn't stop with the birds. He says that which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? Some of your translations may say, add a cubit to your height. They're both figures of speech, could be interpreted either way. What does it mean? Worrying accomplishes nothing. And if you could add a single hour to your life, what is a single hour compared to all what? Eternity. Why? Because you will live somewhere someday. And what's a single hour compared to all eternity? That's the point Jesus is making. And then he starts to talk about lilies. And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. Solomon. Solomon was the king who had it all. He had money, he had wealth, he built a magnificent palace, he built the temple. He was the king who had it all. And yet, he couldn't find a seamstress who could make him clothes as beautiful as a lily. He couldn't do it. There was no seamstress available who could, who could spin thread into fabric and take that fabric and sew it into a garment as beautiful as a lily. And here's what's fascinating about lilies, not all varieties, but many you have referred to as what? Daylilies. I have several varieties. Wendy and I have trekked to a daylily farm on more than one occasion, and we have purchased daylilies. On the farm that we go to, they have varieties ranging. You, you simply get a couple of, uh, uh, of fronds, they're called, uh, per, per dig, and varieties ranging from $5 to $200. Yeah. Now, I must tell you that all of ours cost five bucks, all right, just so, just so you know. But I have one that's called Lake Norman Sunset. Lake Norman Sunset has bright orange on the outside. It fades purplish to a paler orange on the inside. And when it blooms, it looks like a sunset over a lake. I've got one called Tigger. And if you look at Tigger, Tigger looks just like Tigger on Winnie the Pooh. It's the same Colors, the, the contrast in oranges of Tigger on Winnie the Pooh. A beautiful, beautiful daylily. I've got one that's yellow. It's a bright yellow, but all its, all its flowers are strings. And they cascade down when it blooms. I'm a nerd, as you know, about many things. And one is flowers. They're all labeled around my yard. I know where they are. And, and what year I put them in and when to divide them. But here's something that's rather interesting about those lilies is when they bloom, every, when they begin to bloom, they're, they're, they're sprouting up now, they'll bloom in late May, early June, and when they begin to bloom, that flower lasts one day. That's it. I've got one day 
when that first one comes out, and by day's end, it will have wilted. And I look for the next one. That's how they work. If God would so intricately design a lily just for one day for my viewing pleasure, just one day for me to look out my front door and step out and look at that flower as it blooms, if he would so do that for one day, if he would clothe the grass of the field, Jesus said, with those. Solomon can't pull it off. If he could do that, and the grass of the field in Jesus' day, wood was scarce, was used as fuel in ovens. So grass, which is alive today, cut down tomorrow, thrown into the oven as fuel to bake something, if God would do that, will he not put clothes on my back? That's what Jesus is saying. And then there's the tiny little phrase, O you of what? Little faith. Prescription number one, the doctor is in this morning. His name is Jesus. You're worried. You're worried about your marriage. And maybe your marriage has given you reason to worry. You're worried about your job, and maybe your job has given you reason to worry. You're worried about your health, and maybe your health has given you reason to worry. You are worried about your teenagers, and maybe they've given you reason to worry. Do you know what Dr. Jesus says? Look around at creation. It's temporary, it's transitory, it's leaving here. You're going to live somewhere someday. And since you're going to live somewhere someday, guess what? As much as I care about the grass of the field to clothe it with lilies and as much as I care about the bird to feed it, I care so much more about you. Secondly, he says, look up. Check it out. Look up. Verse 31, therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? Verse 32, for the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. The Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Look up. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Look up. Seek God first. Seek his righteousness first, and he'll add all of this to you. Now, you can't see it in the English, but it's there in the Greek. The word seek is the same root word, but the first time you see it in the Greek, it has a prefix in front of it, and the prefix in front of it is epi, and epi in the Greek means more than, beyond, uh, above and beyond. 
When you put it in the front of the word seek, that's why in your, my English translation it says seek after. When you put it in front of the word seek, you could really change that word seek to the word crave. Crave. Jesus says Gentiles crave after these things. Gentiles, referring to a class of people who in those days weren't Jews, meaning they weren't unbelievers. And Jesus says unbelievers crave material things. They crave after those things. They crave food. They crave clothing. They crave something to drink. Unbelievers do. But you seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That word seek doesn't have epi in front of it. It means to seek in order to find. So here we've got to understand if Jesus never would tell us to seek something, we couldn't find. So what are we looking for? That's important to know. Seek first, meaning in order of importance, the kingdom of God. Seek first the kingdom of God. Well, we're not used to kingdom terminology. Why? Because we, uh, we don't live in a monarch. We live in a democracy. A kingdom implies a king, which implies a rule or a ruler, which implies rules, which implies stuff we got to do. We got to obey. Seek first the kingdom who has a king who makes rules that we are to obey. That's the implication of that. We say, okay, these guys could roll with that, but then he added, and his righteousness. And all of a sudden, we're in a quandary. Why? Well, his righteousness is nothing short of perfection. Seek the kingdom of God and his righteousness, meaning you got to be perfect. You've got to be perfect. Seek his righteousness. And if you'll do that, all of this will be added to you. And everybody standing on the hill that day, looking up at Jesus as he is talking, knows they're done. He has raised the bar. There's no way. They can't be perfect. They can't figure it out. They can't get his righteousness. What is he doing? He's setting them up for ultimate failure, it seems. Yes, he's setting them up early in his ministry to know that the heavenly father who provides food for robins and provides beautiful lilies for grassy fields that's going to be just brought up and cut up and thrown into the oven will ultimately provide for their righteousness. How? The very guy who's talking. Jesus himself. Oh, you see, the cross about which we've sung today cast a large shadow over Jesus' life. Jesus lived to die. He existed to die. He lived to die on the cross. Why? Because he alone is righteous. He alone is perfect. He alone could provide the sacrifice for my sins, for your sins. And so when Jesus said, seek his righteousness, all of a sudden they're in a fix. Why? Romans 3.10 says this, there is none righteous. No, not what? 
No, not one. Billy Graham, he's not righteous. He isn't. And how many people would love five minutes with Billy Graham, right? Wouldn't that be amazing to sit with this guy and spend just five minutes with Billy Graham? I was at Montreat this week, and there was a group of college students sitting there at lunch. This kid's name is Alan. Wendy said, Alan, you got to tell Jerry what you did. I said, Alan, what did you do? He said, well, I decided I needed to see Billy Graham before I graduate. I said, then what did you do? And Alan's a tall, wiry kind of guy. He said, well, I went up to his house, to his property. I said, yes, and it's got a fence around it, I hear. He said, it does, but it had an opening. (laughs) What? He said, yes, it has a fence, but I found a hole. What did you do? He said, I slid under it. I said, Alan, you are crazy. He said, yes, I slid under the fence. And he said, I brushed myself off, and I watched the road, and some cars were going in and out of the drive, so I ducked down to get out out of the way of the cars. I said, what did you do after that? He said, I walked up to his front door. (laughs) You're an idiot. (laughs) I said, what happened? He said, I knocked, and somebody came to the door. And I said, what did he say? And he said, he looked at me and said, well... It's been years since this has happened. (laughs) Who was it? He said, I guess he's in charge of Billy Graham. Because he said, what can I do for you? He said, I just came to see Billy. (laughs) And the guy looked at him and said, listen, you can't see Billy. And Alan said, well, I made it this far. You know? And the guy said, you know, I'm really sorry, but you can't see Billy Graham. And, and, And Alan said, well, what's he doing? The guy said, he's sleeping right now. Let me, let me drive you off the property. So he put Alan in his car. He promised to take him to lunch. Alan said he hasn't made good on that promise. Took him off the car and escorted him. And Alan thought all was well until he received this little letter in the box with a restraining order. Yes, he can't be anywhere Billy is. So uh, anywhere, anywhere. Now he has to watch everywhere he goes just in case Billy's going to be there, he says. For the rest of his life, he just wanted to see Billy Graham. And guess what? Billy is a sinner like you and me who cannot be righteous apart from Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. Billy's no better than Alan. Billy's no better than you. If Jesus hadn't saved Billy, Billy would be lost for all eternity. So Jesus set up an impossible task that even Billy Graham couldn't accomplish. You and I cannot accomplish. But he did it for us on the cross. That's what we're saying. At the cross, at the cross, I surrender my life. I'm in awe of you. I'm in awe of you where the love ran red and my sins washed white. Every person in the room today who knows Christ, your sins have been washed clean by the blood of the Christ who was saying, look up, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Jesus knew he would die, 
He knew three days later he would raise victoriously from the dead that sin and death and Satan would be ultimately defeated. He doesn't stop there. He is intensely practical. Verse 34. Therefore, he says, do not be anxious. The phrase occurs six times in this, uh, this part of Jesus' sermon. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. What is he saying? Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Number one, he says, look around at creation. Number two, he says, look up to the creator. Number three, he says, look after today's responsibilities. One of the best antidotes practically to worry is do today what you've got to do today rather than sitting around today worried about what you have to do tomorrow. That's what this says. Do today what you have to do today rather than sitting around being worried about what you have to do tomorrow or what may happen tomorrow. What's the point? Romans 8.32. Romans 8.32 says this. Speaking of God, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all. That's the cross. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? If God would give Jesus to take care of your biggest tomorrow, will he not take care of all your little tomorrows between now and the time you meet Jesus? Let me ask you that again. If God would give Jesus to take care of our biggest tomorrow, meaning eternity, you will live somewhere someday. If God would give Jesus to take care of that biggest tomorrow, will he not take care of every tiny tomorrow between the point that you came to Christ and the point you get home? Wow. Over the past three months, people in our church have been through tragedy after tragedy and difficulty after difficulty. Just one thing after another after another. Yet I look around this room and I see you sitting here this morning and you will be sitting in the next service and you've lost loved ones, you've been diagnosed with cancer, you've lost your vision, you've lost your job. There are so many things that have happened. Yet if we believe that God gave Jesus for our greatest need, will God not also meet every single need we have, church? Amen. If God would send his only son, his precious son, his loving son to die for us, will he not also put clothes on our back? And will he not also put food on the table? Will he not also give us peace in the middle of the night when the news is absolutely horrific? Will God not also intervene to save your marriage? Will he not also intervene to save and meet every single need you have, church? He will. That's Romans 8.32. 
That's what Jesus is saying here. So what should you do? Do what you got to do today. It was about four or five weeks ago that Wendy's grandmother, Gogo, was diagnosed with cancer. And it was interesting what she did. She came home from the hospital or from the doctor having no idea she lives with us, having no idea how severe her cancer was. The doctors didn't know then. They just knew she had cancer, and that's all they could tell her that day. Having no idea how severe it was, how difficult it was, what, what it would do, and she walked in the back door, went over to the dryer and the washer, and started doing laundry. That's what she did. And never worried. It was four weeks later that we found out the severity of her, her cancer. I said to her one time, go, go, should we speed this thing up? Oh, no, honey. She calls everybody honey. Oh, no, honey. Whatever it is, it will be. Okay. Glad you're fine. We're freaking out. The rest of us who live in this house. Go, go, for those four weeks did what she always did. And somehow, that seemed to enable her to let tomorrow take care of tomorrow. That's what Jesus is saying here. In 1950, actually in the 40s, there was a a singer by the name of Ira Stampill. Our Stampill was a gospel singer, called into ministry. God was using him tremendously. He had a wife who was very gifted and talented, and she could sing too. And so together they served God until his wife became weary of the ministry, became weary of the schedule, the low pay, the things that accompanied an itinerant musician in the 40s. And in 1950, she looked at her husband and she said, I'm done. I'm out. She walked. She divorced him, which carries a stigma any day but in the 1950 in the ministry. You could just say, I'm done. Not only did she divorce him, but just a few weeks later, she was in a traffic accident, a fatal one, and she died. At that point, you would expect Ira Stampill to to lay it down and to get angry at God and to give up and say, this is over. But he penned the words of a song that go like this. I don't know about tomorrow. I just live from day to day. I don't borrow from its sunshine. For the skies may turn to gray. I don't worry o'er the future. For I know what Jesus said. And today I'll walk beside him.
for he knows what is ahead. Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand, but I know who holds tomorrow, and I know who holds my hand. I don't know about tomorrow. It may bring me poverty, but the one who feeds the sparrows is the one who stands by me. And whatever be my fortune, be it through the flame or flood, still his presence goes before me, and I'm covered by his blood. Many things about tomorrow I don't seem to understand. But I know who holds tomorrow, and I know who holds my hand. And all God's people say, Amen. 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 We know who holds tomorrow. We know He holds our hand. We know He holds our hand. Jesus says, Look around. Look up. Look after whatever it is you've got to do today. Two things as you leave. Some of you need to take this prescription, and you need to take it that seriously as if your doctor, your medical doctor, were sitting looking at you. You need to do this. You need to walk out of this place today and look around. You need to look up to God. Some of you walked in here this morning on Easter Sunday 2014 lost. You don't know Christ. You're, you're a good person. You've done some good things, but you don't know Christ, and you need to seek him first. First, the first importance. At the cross, at the cross, I surrender my life. That's got to be your language. You've got to let go. You've got to give up. And then there are others of you who practically need to do this. Romans 8.32, you need to write on a card and you need to memorize. If God, who did not spare his only son but gave him up for us all, how will he not much more freely with him Give us all things, and that needs to be on your mirror. It needs to be where you're serving in the military. It needs to be in the middle of the troubled marriage. It needs to be uh, at your workplace. It needs to be on the dash of your car. It needs to be in a place where it ultimately climbs down into your heart and affects your thinking. And when worry arises... You replace that with his word. 